Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. This morning I am going to do something a little very different for me, and that is that I didn't really like what I was going to preach on, which was to go to the next section of, of 1 Corinthians 11, which is where, um, no, not 11, 14, which is where the Apostle Paul talks about if the bugle blows an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? It's actually the text that our church gets its name from, clear note. You have to blow a clear note for people to prepare for battle. But because of the circumstances of the church, I was uncomfortable. And then yesterday I got from one of my dearest and oldest friends a sermon he's preaching today, and I decided to preach his sermon today because it was very helpful to me. And I'll tell you a little bit more about him, but this is uh, a sermon of Paul Cote, who is giving it this morning in Massachusetts at his church. So let's hear the word of God from Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 2 and reading to the end of the chapter, verse 30. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now when John, this is uh, John the Baptist, the prophet, Now, when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, to Jesus, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent men take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John... And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking. And they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, 
they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the first sermon, what I did was try to read the sermon and make comments. This time I'm going to depart from it, but just understand what I'm saying comes largely from what Paul said. Now, who is Paul? I think it's important for you to understand that in, 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 in where I'm going in the sermon. Paul is a man who I first met at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, who uh, one day I was walking down the dorm floor, and on my left was a dude, kind of a squirrely dude. And he was squirrely because he had a very large top hat on. You know, we weren't out at the bars, we were in the dorm, on our floor, and he had this top hat. It was a leather top hat. And I looked at him, I said, who are you? He said, my name is Paul Cote. And I said, really, tell me something about you. And he said, well, I like Bob Dylan. And I said, well, let's, I said, we should be friends. And so we were friends. We were about as opposite as you could get, although we both liked Bob Dylan and I liked his hat. And we ended up living together for the next year, and uh, it was a period in my life where I wasn't honoring God, but I believed, and you tell me how that works, because I don't understand how it works that you're not honoring God and you believe, but I did believe and I wasn't honoring God. And we'd go out to the bars, Bob, Phil, I mean, Paul wasn't big on that. I was still working on my undergraduate degree, it was my, I think, first, second, third, fourth. This was my fourth school. It took one more. I had five before I got my bachelor's, right? And uh, he was getting a master's in public administration. And uh, we ended up living together in an efficiency apartment with Susie Sheck, who you have met. She's been here a number of times. And the, the incredible thing is that all three of us love Jesus. And how does that happen? Uh, we lived in an efficiency together because Paul and I had rented one. Its efficiency is a one-room apartment. And uh, then Susie got kicked out of the dorms because she ran out of money. And so we invited her in. And we're still friends. Well, time went on. He got his master's. He went to work in Wheaton for the city manager. 
And uh, I finally finished up my undergraduate degree, and I went off to, to uh, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Massachusetts, and Paul quit his job, and he came to seminary also. He was single. And we both went through seminary, continued to be very close friends, probably three out of four out of seven nights a week he'd be eating at our house. Um, and then... I got disappointed with God, and that's the title of the, this. Uh, that's the title of this sermon: disappointment in ministry. Um, there had come a day when we were living in the efficiency apartment where I felt very heavily the necessity of witnessing to Paul about Jesus Christ. He knew I was a Christian. He also knew my sin, and one day I said to him, "Paul, my life." It dishonors God. And so I have no justification for what I'm about to say to you. But don't look at me, look at Jesus. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is perfect. The Bible is his word. And you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. How does that work? <laughs> well, Paul went outside... I don't think he did it that day, but soon after, he went outside, he sat on the steps of our apartment house, and he read the Sermon on the Mount. And he became a Christian. And so we go through seminary, and we get done, and Paul and I both begin to look for a church. And Paul applied to a number of places, but he didn't get a church. And I did. And I've had this happen more than once, that I have a friend who I think is perfectly suited to be a pastor. And God doesn't use them in that way. And it may seem strange to you, but it angers me. And I don't know why, maybe some of you are psychologists can explain that to me. But it angered me that Paul Cote did not get a job. And the reason was that Paul... Well, the reason it angered me then was that Paul was a humble man, and I'm not humble. And here he was, intelligent, well-spoken, good grades. I always think humble people have no sin, women and humble people. And here I was getting a job, and Paul Cote got no job, and it really was a disappointment to me. Because I looked at myself and I looked at Paul and I said, who would I rather have as my pastor? And there was no question in my mind, Paul. So Paul ended up taking a job working for a city in Massachusetts as its director of public works, you know, the kind of people that make decisions about whether we get sewer over here. That's funny. Um, We want sewer over here. And uh, Paul's been here several times Uh, This last year when Gen Con was up in Indy, Paul and his friend, uh, I can't remember his name, uh, his friend has been at every Gen Con starting when Gary Gygax and his wife made hot dogs for people at the first one. And uh, so I got up, I got to go up there and have dinner with a couple of the, the people that grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons with Gary Gygax while he was writing it. And so I, I spent a, a night with rock stars. 
but rock stars among people who were the weirdest group of people I've ever seen in my life. You should have seen the city streets of Indianapolis that night. It was like it was better than Walmart, right? (laughs) I went home and talked to my father-in-law, godly man. And I said, Dad, I just, he knew Paul because Paul had gone to church with him when he was working in Wheaton. I said, Dad, I don't know why Paul isn't a pastor. And I, I told him I was upset about it. And I remember Dad saying to me, no, Tim, Paul shouldn't be a pastor. And he, he loved Paul. There was nothing critical about it. But he could see something about Paul that he felt that that was not the right calling for him. You know, it was a very curious thing. So, there are people in my life that I have watched their gifts, and I could list them off. Some of you know the names of these people. And I have had great difficulty dealing with the fact that God has not made them be pastors. All right? And yet it's very clear that God hasn't called them. They know who they are. (laughs) And... Isn't this the way our lives are? All of us have these ideas. And by the way, if you want to know why I want people to be pastors, it's not because I'm a pastor, although that, that, um, that enters into it. The reason I want people to be pastors is because I grew up watching my father be a shepherd to the church we attended. And I watched my father and mother every single Sunday ministering to people out in front of the church until everybody was gone. They bore the burdens. They loved people. They cared. They loved the church of Jesus Christ. And I always saw the pastor leave right away in his nice Oldsmobile the rich men of the church had bought for him. And I didn't resent it, but I learned to love the things my father learned. Loved. Do you understand? And that, that this is what Jesus is talking about here. When he talks about how the Father and the Son are together, right? And so the reason I want people to be pastors is I see the church as sheep without shepherd, harassed and helpless. And I want men who will shepherd the sheep with their wives because the church needs it. It needs it so badly. So anyhow... So that's why I want Paul. Not, I don't want to. He runs the sewer of Andover or something like that. But I trust God in that, and that's what this sermon is about. This sermon is about John the Baptist not trusting God with how God used his gifts. Right? And let me tell you, John the Baptist was not trying to find a place to stand, sort of, kind of Christiany and kind of, <laughs> you know, kind of not scandalous to the world and not christian right? From the moment he chose his belt and his clothes and his food, John the Baptist was sold out. And here, where we pick up the story, John the Baptist is in prison. Why? Well, not because he had a 5,000-member church in Manhattan, Right? Not because he'd come up with a two-kingdom theory where the church has one thing inside her walls and, and then is silent outside the wall. No, no, no. John the Baptist had said 
to Herod Antipas, who was the ruler of this section of Galilee up in the north. He had said to her, you should not have your brother's wife. And let me tell you, if you're called out by name by John the Baptist, (laughs) and so guess what? John the Baptist went to prison. That's a shocker. (laughs) And do you remember what happened to John the Baptist after our story this morning? He ended up having his head taken off. Why? Well, because that's what he'd said. The woman who was in that relationship was so you know what it. I mean, she was really, really angry at him. And so when her daughter came in and danced a sexy dance in front of all the big wigs, right? And, and, and her husband thought, this is like the cat's meow. Ask me anything and I'll give it to you. So she went out to her mother and said, what should I ask for? And she said, ask for... And so John the Baptist died a very undignified death. He didn't die because Herod was angry at him. He died because Herod's wife was angry at him and got her sexy teenage daughter to ask for his head. And so John is in prison bearing the weight of his public ministry of calling out the President of the United States for his sexual immorality. Are you all with me? There's not another voice in the land that's doing it except a bunch of rabid feminists. But there's a man of God who's done it. And so he pays for it with prison, and he's in prison, and Jesus sends out his 12 disciples to preach and teach. And Jesus himself is preaching and teaching, and John the Baptist looks at Jesus, and here's what he thinks. He thinks, you know, I'm in prison. I gave up everything. I was faithful in confronting the religious leaders. When the religious leaders came to be baptized, I said, who taught you to flee the wrath to come? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And then I called out Herod for having his brother's wife, incest. And I'm here, and Jesus is proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. And if the kingdom of God does not judge the wicked... If I'm not vindicated, if I'm sitting in prison, how can this be the kingdom of God that's coming? And so he sends his disciples to Jesus. Are you the one who who has come, or, or should we be looking for somebody else? This is the man who, when he baptized Jesus, remember? The dove? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He knew Jesus was the Messiah. But it was very difficult for him because the judgment had not arrived. And you know, all of us who live clean lives cannot love the judgment of God, because we live clean clean lives. And by clean, I mean we don't suffer for, for Jesus. Those of us who don't suffer for Jesus, we don't love the justice of God. <laughs> I mean, you all realize this, right? You have to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ before the justice of God matters to you. Don't ever tell me that you, know, that you have trouble with God's judgment because that tells me you don't suffer for Jesus Christ. But once you start suffering then, and here John the Baptist is and he's looking around and he doesn't see judgment. What he sees is healings, raising from the dead, demons cast out, 
people repenting, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the lame walking, but he doesn't see judgment. And what has he done? Well, he's, he's proclaimed the judgment of God on all unrighteousness. That's how you make the path straight and flat for the coming of the Messiah. You proclaim the holiness of God and the judgment of God. And so, in what I would like to say is a plaintive, uh, a very pathetic way, he sends his disciples to ask the question, are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Okay, do you feel it? Do you feel it? Do you love John the Baptist, and do you feel it? Two problems John had. One was brain, and one was heart. The brain one was, where is the judgment of God? In other words, I know that the Bible says judgment. I know that God says that he will vindicate the righteous. I was faithful in speaking the whole truth to the wicked. I am now suffering. Where's the vindication? Where is the judgment? That's the intellectual problem he has. And Jesus made clear that the judgment would come. In Matthew 13, a couple chapters later, Jesus is telling the parable of the wheat and the tares. And then he ends it by saying in verse 41 of 13, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. And so here John is shining righteous. He's shining his light. But there is no gathering. There is no furnace of fire. There's no weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what we need to learn here is God doesn't work at our schedule. He doesn't work according to our priorities. God is not beholden to us. Everybody else is. You know the old joke about the Jewish mother. How many Jewish mothers does it take to change a light bulb? None. I'll just sit here in the dark. You know... Your mother thinks that the world exists, especially your children, to make her happy, right? <laughs> right? What's the purpose of children? To make their mother happy. What's the purpose of Facebook? To make you happy. What's the purpose of government? To give you everything you don't have because you're a lazy slob. What's the purpose of America? To suck in the wealth of every other country of the world. I mean, come on. Everywhere we go, we demand that we are served, that we are adored, that we are loved, that our mistakes are overlooked. And everywhere we look, we have an entitlement mentality. I am entitled. An entitlement mentality is no respecter of persons, of races, of religions. Christians have learned it as well as everybody else has. 
And John the Baptist has not an entitlement mentality, but he has expectations. And God isn't meeting them. Jesus is seeing John the Baptist asking the question. John is thinking, okay, Jesus, I'm a prophet. I'm your cousin. And I am in prison. You can stop by any time now. It's set the prisoner free time. And in the end, he would die a martyr. But then he would be free in the most profound sense that any of us can be free. You remember the old statement that a Christian desires three things with regard to sin. Justification, that it doesn't condemn. Sanctification, that it doesn't reign, R-E-I-G-N. And glorification, that it will not be. Right? And glorification only comes at death. So John the Baptist is going to have vindication. He is going to have perfect peace when finally the body of sin and death will no longer torment him day and night. You remember, in this world we live in death. And if who can we seek for relief but thou, O Lord, who for our sins are justly displeased? This is the committal service. For 500 years, Protestants have been saying it. And so when we struggle... In this life, because God is not giving to us on our timetable what we believe our works, you know, should give us. If God is not leveraging our, (laughs) you know, our goodness, our witness, our, our efforts, if God isn't leveraging them in a way that they could help, you know, people, Now, listen, the really difficult one is when God doesn't use your motherhood. The way you think he should. And those of you who are young parents are going to face this. You're going to see that despite your love and your care and your discipline and your instruction of children, that some of your children are going to despise your godliness and they're going to despise Jesus Christ. And you as a mother are going to say, well, I was a sinner, but I tried my best. And you'll see God's sovereignty over your children's souls. And you'll have to ask yourself, who do you love more, your family or God? Because you'll realize that if you love your family more, you're going to end your life in bitterness. But if you love God more, you say to your children, you, like my dad said to me, you will leave my home because you are not honoring God. And if he hadn't done that, I would never be here today. And some of them won't come back and repent. I was talking yesterday to some of the dearest long-term friends of Mary Lee and me, and I had a conversation I've been putting off for a number of weeks because right after New Year's, we got word that their son had just died. And I didn't know the story, but I didn't think it was going to be a good one. And it wasn't. 
I found out that it was a young man who was out in Eugene, Oregon, and he was, uh, he was sick. He'd just been home visiting his family. He had no, no problems health-wise, really. He had some problems. And uh, he went home, and he got sick, and he got a bacterial uh, pneumonia. And being stubborn and not liking doctors, he didn't go to a doctor, and he decided one day he was going to go outside and get on his bike and ride it off. He came back home walking. He set his bike down, he went up to his apartment, and when he hit the door of his bedroom, he fell dead. And then they were called and told that their son was gone. And so I listened to this dad tell the account of his son's life and his relationship with his son, his wife's relationship with his son, his daughter's relationship with his son, his son's older son's relationship with his son. And I remembered when Mary Lee and I were on this boat up in Alaska with this couple. They owned it. And uh, I remembered how this father, who should have been enjoying the two weeks we were up there, but he spent much of his time caring for that son, who was a toddler at the time. And I, I told him what a good father he was. I said, you were more a mother to that boy than his mother was. You know, he carried him everywhere. He was inconvenienced constantly by this little boy. Then I listened to the dad talk about the times that he had tried to speak truth into his son's life. And, you know, it was clear that he felt at times that he had been too hard on his son. So here you are, probably 64 years old, and your 31-year-old son has just died. He's gone. And so you wonder, what did I do right and what did I do wrong? And I said to him, you know, thank God that you were a father who wasn't just a mother to his son. Thank God that you said no to your son. And I'm sure you sinned as you said no to your son. I'm sure that there were impatiences and a lack of gentleness at times. I mean, he's a man, you know. <laughs> Come on, dudes. <laughs> you know, you know what it is to be a man, you know. Oh, Amos, you're so gentle. But don't worry, the hair bun, that gives you a soft side that we all like. And this is what the life of a Christian is, is you raise your children as a mother and as a father. And honestly, the older I get, the more I think that pastoral ministry is helping parents to cope with children who hate God. And you say, well, they don't hate God. <laughs> I say, oh, okay. No, no, they hate God. What is America today? It's a nation of people who hate God. Okay, it's not that they just can't get it right. They're rebels against God. You realize this. That's the truth. And so you have parents who, on the one hand, have 
flesh and blood, and on the other hand have God. And God is not leveraging their motherhood the way they want their motherhood leveraged. (laughs) You know? And so... Christian mothers accuse God of evil, and they get bitter, and they get hard. Right? You all see this going on. And how difficult it is for John the Baptist to trust God with his faithfulness. And John the Baptist was a sinner. He was, yeah, he was a great man, but he was a sinner. John the Baptist failed constantly because he was a a mortal man. He lived under the fall. And you as a mother are just a sinner. The elders of this church are just sinners. And you all know I'm a sinner. And we look around us and we say, God, look at what we've given you. We haven't taken the good-paying job. We've stayed home with our children. How can you let me have a temper problem? You know, I've stayed home with the children. Do you know how hard that is today? And now I have to struggle with my temper? And so we have a scheme that God is supposed to fit into. And John the Baptist had the same scheme. And Jesus said what? He said a couple things. He loved John. I guarantee you he loved John the Baptist. (laughs) And he said this to him. He said, go tell John what you say. And really, if you think about what you see, it's pretty doggone good. You know, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised from the dead, you know. Tell them what you see. And miracle of miracles, miracle of miracles, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Which is the one thing that no church will do today. We don't want to preach to the poor. We want to preach to the PhDs. Not you, but me. You know, I don't want the poor, hicks, hillbillies, Green County. No way. And then Mike shows up and it's like, okay, dude. He isn't here today, so I can say it. I remember the day Mike showed up. As soon as the sermon was over, he was out putting the tobacco in. We once got a letter from somebody who complained that the pastors allowed people to do drugs in the parking lot after the service. And we were trying as hard as we could to figure out, who were we letting do drugs in the... Was somebody smoking dope out in the parking lot after morning worship, you know? Then we realized it was Mike putting his chew in, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, this is a real Wheaton accusation, you know. (laughs) And so Jesus' answer is, look at the fruit. Look at the fruit. The fruit is unbelievably good. Tell John what you say. Then, then Jesus 
continues. And what does he say? Well, Jesus has this little aside about John the Baptist because he knows that people there are probably looking down their nose at John for being weak and complaining. You know what I'm saying? And Jesus brings the full weight of his authority down in John's court. You know, what you go to see? You like a bunch of little children, you know? You don't like it when we're happy, and you don't like it when we're sad. You know, when we're sad, you tell us we should be happy. And when we're happy, you tell us we're drunkards and gluttons. Listen, from the days of John the Baptist, nobody, nobody liked John the Baptist. But you know something? The most insignificant person in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. So what he does is he brings his weight down in complete endorsement and solidarity with John the Baptist. And then he says to all the people that are listening, the least one of you that enters the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus is so tender with us. He knows our fears. He knows that we're about to say, well, (laughs) I'm never going to be John the Baptist. And so he says the least one in the kingdom of God will be greater than him. And then what does Jesus say? Jesus isn't done, okay? Jesus goes from John the Baptist to saying, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven enters with force, and violent men take it by force. Now, that's not how your Bible probably translates it if you have an ASB, but that's the right translation. If it's in the middle voice, it can be the kingdom of God taking it by force. So let me read it again. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven enters with force, and violent men take it by force. Violent men snatch it. Uh, Violent men lay hold of it. Um, in 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 the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, the 16th chapter, the 16th verse, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. The kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing and forceful men are seizing it. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, don't focus on what you don't have that you want. Don't focus on what isn't happening. Focus on what is happening. The kingdom of God is coming in forcefully and violent men are seizing it. So he's just gotten done saying, dude, John the Baptist is not a soft man. Remember where he says soft raiment? It's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to say neither the malakoi nor the, the arsenikoite. So it's effeminate and what? Homosexuals. And he's saying, John the Baptist wasn't a soft man. Soft men wear soft clothing and, and they're in King's Palace. They're in Washington, D.C. They're in Carmel. They're on the east side. But the kingdom of God is entering forcefully, and violent men are ceasing it. Now listen, women, I'm sorry, I love everybody. But this is a masculine statement. And women are always most comfortable and most safe where violent men are seizing the kingdom of God. Don't you ever be offended by your husband when he assumes a certain violence in the raising of his children. And I'm not talking about battering. I'm not talking about slapping. 
I'm saying that his being becomes something that you're not entirely comfortable with. (laughs) All of a sudden, he seems to be 12 feet tall. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying violent men seize it by force. And this is the perfect description of John the Baptist. You don't like it. What shall I compare? It's like children sitting. You don't like John the Baptist. You don't like the violence of him seizing the kingdom of God. Okay, 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 fine. You don't like it. And then he says this. He began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they didn't repent. (laughs) You know, come on, people. Put yourself there. John the Baptist, well, are you the one? Go tell him what you saw. You people, you're looking down on John? From the days that he wasn't in soft raiment and king, king's pot, violent men are going to say, woe to you, Bethsaida and Chorazin. Why? For if the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred to you, why is Tyre and Sidon used? Well, because they're cities infamous for their wickedness. <coughs> and guess what? They're cities worse than Tyre and Sidon. You know what they are? Bloomington. Do you notice how he ends? You, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? Will you will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would, have been, it would have remained at this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Jesus is not the Jesus of evangelicalism. Do you understand this? Jesus is God, and he does not live in our guidelines, and he does not try to conform himself to what our mother thinks he should be like. Okay? Jesus is not looking for the approval of his bride. He is Lord of the church. Okay? And listen, I don't love Jesus anywhere in the Gospels more than right at this moment. Because he's just thrown down the gauntlet to me. He's made it very clear what I am to do. And that is, I am to live flat out as the sinful fat man I am for him. Okay, I say fat because that stands for a whole bunch of sins you don't want me to say. So be happy I said fat. Okay, and I know that soon I'm going to stand before him and I have been taught from the time I was born to honor God. I have had good examples in my life of godliness. And if I don't serve God, let me tell you, Bethsaida will be much better than Tim Bailey. And this is true of you because you've heard the preaching of God's word. You stand after the cross. If you don't serve God, you will plead to be in the place that Sodom and Gomorrah are. Because what you've been given is unbelievable, and that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. You don't want to serve God? You want to get wasted? Be my guest. And you will end up dead in a few years. Ah, shoot, you may live to 50. 
you'll end up with three or four husbands, three or four wives. Your parents may say when you die that, well, he loved Jesus. But God is no man's debtor, and he is not a fool, and his judgments are righteous and true. And someday it will be clear whether or not you had faith and whether your life was lived for God or for yourself. A lot of you are in play right now. I know that. And I plead with you, don't be scandalous at Jesus. The things he said are true, and they should be the things he says that are most encouraging to you. The blind walk. The poor have Christ preached to them. You know, how could you not love that? One church plant. One church plant that's not planted by the standards of MTW or MNA. And you don't know what I'm talking about, but you know, my denomination, my former one, you know how they planted churches? Literally. They will go and count the number of angles on a roof and choose the neighborhoods that have the most complicated roofs. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And Jesus ends this section, which, you know, I would call this chapter the scorched earth chapter. Right? It's, it's Sherman marching to the ocean. And how does Jesus end it? Do you remember how he ends it? He says this. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. So which are you, wise and intelligent or infant? Hmm? Hmm? <laughs> which is it? What are you? Come on, what are you? Are you a baby? Huh? Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. So God loves to reveal these things to the innocent and to the humble and to the childlike, to the babies and to the infants. And he loves to hide it from the powerful and the bright and the degreed, the intellectuals. And then he says this about his perceptions. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now, at this point, you're all waiting to have him reveal himself to you, right? Okay, I get it. If I want to be with God, I need to be with the Son. Oh, Son, reveal yourself to me. Reveal yourself to me. And then Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and what? You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Oh, my. We just don't think his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But the reason is we're not coming to him. We're not like a baby. And that's what we need to be. 
We need to be tender babies who just lift their arms, and God picks them up, rubs their back, pats their head, coos in their ear, feeds them, and we have rest for our souls. We're stilled, and we're quieted like a weaned infant. All our protests are done. All our demands that God fulfill our guidelines and expectations. We're even done with our children. We did what we could, and we still pray. But God is sovereign, and he will do as he does. And that's the God you worship. That's the God you worship. And a hundred times out of a hundred times, you choose him over your own flesh and blood. Do you understand me? And when you choose him, you will find rest for your souls. Thank you, Paul, for your sermon. Let's pray.